everyone. Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Courtney. I'm Patrick. Welcome back. I wasn't sure if I was going to get to the I'm Patrick part. <laughs> We're going to do a few, it's been a few weeks. We had a few takes of the, the intro. It was so funny. The first time we tried this intro, I was like, wait, what do I usually say? What, what do I say? <laughs> <laughs> Brain fog is real. It's real. It's legit. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm fantastic. Good. It's miserable outside. It's yeah, it's rainy right now. In the middle of the week, which is weird because we never really record in the middle of the week, but we got stuff going on this week, so I'm all yeah. off. It's too early for us to normally record, too. Yeah, discombobulated. This is a mess. Well, thank you all for being so patient with us. We took a week off. I'm dealing with some personal stuff, which I'll get into more later at a later date. Yeah, but, life gets um, in the way sometimes, that's all. Yeah, it just it happens. But... um Everybody has been so supportive and so kind, and no yeah. one was angry at us. Which surprisingly, surprisingly, I always feel like people are going to be like, "Where's oh, my episode?" Give up on me because <laughs> not shooting out episodes every other week. No, I mean we're still. I mean we're about know. to hit twenty five thousand listens. That's crazy. Thank you all so much. And what episode is this? Fifty two. Fifty two. Fifty two. Awesome. Well, that's been our life for a while. It's been busy it's and been, crazy. That's been our life. We're like, okay, we just haven't been here because of life. But I will say that it took me a good three weeks to work on this case, just with all of yeah. the levels of it. Yeah, with everything else going on, like you couldn't even, last week you were like, I can't do it this week. We just, I need an extra week to put this thing together. Yeah, and there's so many, like, I, I feel like I could actually make a podcast out of this case. That's what you were saying. You said you could probably make a whole series out of this thing. Upload once a week, an episode a week for a year, and still be on it. That's I mean, crazy. it's crazy, but we did it. You, you did it. I didn't did it. I mean, I think you, did, you didn't do it. I didn't did it. <laughs> but you're you're going you're gonna to be like, whoa, what? This one's yeah, going to be nuts. Yeah, I've expect that. So anything less than that, I'm disappointed at this point. Yeah. Okay. You come with the what the fuck factor. That's what I do. 10 million. That's what I do. Well, are you ready to kind of talk about what we're going to get into today? Or do you have any more business to take care of? No, no business. Business is business is good. Okay. Well, we listen to these stories of horrible people committing awful murders week in and week out here on Evil Pudding. And we try to understand why, or at least I do. I want to know why. No, I think everybody, I think that's what so many people's fascination That's why we like true, true crime. crime. Yeah. It's just trying to understand the reason behind the madness. We don't always get those answers because thankfully these monsters that we cover operate on a level that most normal people just can't comprehend. Yeah, I was going to say, we get answers, but they don't make sense to normal people because right. they're so out, out there. But what happens when that monster is a mother? A mother is someone who is supposed to nurture us and love us from birth onward. So when we hear of mothers committing atrocious acts of crimes, especially against their own children, it's extremely hard for our logical mind to understand. I think especially mothers. It's like, how? how? Yeah, it's going to be hard for me to not make comments about this one in some ways. (laughs) Not because of me. No, not because of you or your mother or my mother. I'm just kidding. But I have known... (laughs) We've known mothers that, that were, were just awful. yeah, not like this though. No, no, no. So it's no okay. not like no, no, not to this degree. So how could one intentionally cause harm of any kind to a child that sprung from their own loins? I don't think that this bless you, coconut. Our dogs in the background digging a hole in the bed. 
I don't think that this episode is going to give us any answers to that question, unfortunately. In fact, chances are that we will all leave here today with more questions. But nevertheless, we are going to be looking at a case unlike anything I have ever heard of before. It's the case of Teresa Knorr, the mother from hell. Oh, that's a wonderful title to have. Unfortunately, this episode will deal with extreme violence towards children and every kind of abuse you can imagine. So if that's something that you just can't listen to, please stop here and meet us back here for our next episode. For the rest of you who are still around, let's look into the horrific murders of Sheila Sanders and Susan Knorr at the hands of the one person who is supposed to love and protect them, their mother, Teresa Knorr. Just before daybreak on July 17, 1984, 45-year-old Maybelle Harrison was driving near Squaw Valley, California. She noticed a small fire in the distance near the creek, so she stopped her vehicle and climbed out to investigate further. People in the 80s or 90s were nosy as fuck, man. They really were. (laughs) They're like, what is going on over there? Let me go get my Inspector Gadget hat on and go investigate. Well, uh... Mabel Harrison had grown up around here and she was used to seeing like some forest, not forest fires, but people burning trash and stuff out there. And she noticed that this wasn't like that in the distance. But yeah. I'm assuming there was something stood out to her, but it's, (laughs) did you notice all these stories is always the finding of these bodies is always the nosy ass neighbor was like, I'm going to go investigate this this here happening. Well, Miss Harrison made her way down towards the creek bed when suddenly she was hit with a putrid, unmistakable smell of burning flesh. Awful smell. So she stopped and she ran back uh, down to the road and flagged down a man named Robert Eden. He was a transport driver. He was a truck driver. After she pointed out the small blaze in the distance, Mr. Eden, um, he grabbed a fire extinguisher out of his truck and the pair went racing back towards the fire. After Mr. Eden sprayed out most of the flames, the two were both able to see a very badly charred body of what looked like a mannequin. But we all know it's never a mannequin, is it, Patrick? No, it's not. We should have entitled this podcast, It's Never a Mannequin. Never a Mannequin. It was indeed not a mannequin this time either. Sadly, it was the body of a young girl just in her teens. Mrs. Harrison returned to the highway and waited in the road until a car, actually a sheriff's patrol car, came along. I was lucky. Well, they didn't exactly have cell phones and shit back then. Mm-mm, they? Nope. They're probably kind of in a more rural they were. area. So it's not like there's pay phones around or something. When the officer went to investigate Miss Harrison's claims, he ordered Robert Eden and Mabel, Maybell, I think it's Maybell, Maybell Harrison to stay back because he saw the calamity that they now had on their hands. This was a crime scene, obviously. The only part of the young girl's remains that were not blackened by the flames was the left side of her face. Oh. The girl's mouth had been taped shut with silver duct tape, and her wrists had been taped together. The body was so badly burned that one of her legs had burned through at the knee, and the thigh bone was protruding from her charred flesh. Over 91% of her body was covered in third-degree burns. Homicide detectives showed up and cordoned off the scene. 
Arson specialists used a hydrocarbon detector to verify whether or not the body had been doused with accelerant. And the test came back positive, of course. So our Jane Doe had, in fact, been doused with some kind of accelerant. Yeah, which is something was really crazy to learn about when I was going through some of the schools I went through was how they determined that. I didn't know that, but burn marks and some of the things, depending on the accelerants, can leave different Mm -hmm. discolorations, Mm -hmm. different markings, uh, where the accelerant is versus the rest of the fire. Right. I'd be interested to go onto YouTube and, um, like, view a hydrocarbon test to see what it all entails you know it's interesting because i'm not sure one of the one of the uh one of the craziest things i ever saw in one of those those classes we're looking at um oh what's the point what's the is it flashpoint i can't remember the name of it i think it is flashpoint backdraft no it's flashpoint i was thinking backdraft of the movie but i've seen both of those on video and a backdraft's crazy but a flashpoint's insane it was was a christmas tree fire (gasps) oh and it got to a point where those are gnarly dude the fire got hot enough to ignite the air wow and it, it was all on video and the entire room just turned into a fireball Jesus. It was, no, it was just one little fire in the corner. It don't take long either. No, it was crazy to watch. Well, anyways, a coroner would later determine that this young girl was between the ages of 14 and 17. Jesus. It's tragic. But you're about to hear something even more tragic. When looking for a cause of death, it was determined that she had not been strangled, stabbed, shot, drowned, or beaten to death. The truth was that this young girl had been doused with accelerant and set on fire. She had been burned alive. Oof. Top two, one of the worst ways to die. Because of the beyond violent nature of this attack, their Jane Doe got lots of media attention following her discovery. But no one ever came to claim her, despite dental records and fingerprints being sent out. At the end of the 90-day mandatory hold... Jane Doe, number 485884, remained unclaimed, and she was laid to rest at the New Auburn District Cemetery. I guess there's a hold for 90 days to give them that time frame. Yeah, for they want to give them a time frame for someone to come claim the body, and then right. after a certain period of time, they can't keep them forever. And that's where the young girl remained nameless for the next eight years. Oof. Eight years. That is until the Placer County Sheriff's Office received a call from a 23-year-old woman named Teresa Marie Groves. She went by Terry. Okay. Teresa had one hell of a story to tell the officers, and her story started with her mother, the woman she was named after, her namesake, a monster named Teresa Jimmy Francine Cross. So let's start at the very beginning, shall we? Sure, we shall. Let's go. Teresa Jimmy Francine Cross grew up in Rio Linda, California in the 50s and 60s. Rio Linda, by the way, is in Sacramento County, about 100 miles due west of Donner Pass, for reference. Pretty River is the name of the yeah. town? Okay. <laughs> Which is in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. So Nice area. Pretty area. Teresa did not have an easy life. These people never do, do they? Nope, but that's not an excuse. She was born March 12th, 1946, to Jim Cross and Swanee Gay. That was a cute name, Swanee. She was the couple's youngest child. She had one older sister named Rosemary, and then I believe she had some half-siblings from her parents' previous relationships, but Teresa was the baby. It's not going to be super important. Now, the Cross house was a little odd, One of Rosemary's friends was later interviewed, and she stated that, quote, it never seemed like a happy time at Rosemary's house. Not bad, just not happy. It's not happy. 
To elaborate, Swanee Cross was, she was an intense woman. It was said that she was really into tarot card readings and she would predict the future of all of her children. Oh. She apparently was able to predict that Teresa would go on to have many children and that one of Teresa's children, a girl, would end up giving Teresa endless grief. And (laughs) she was not wrong, let me tell you. (laughs) Swanee also just wasn't that into housework, which honestly, same. But sadly, she left all of the cooking and cleaning up to her two girls, Teresa and Rosemary. I've seen that before. And if the girls didn't cooperate or they took a little too long coming home from school, they were paddled or spanked. And something else that really stood out about Swanee was she favored Teresa. And she made it very clear to anyone that would listen. She loved Teresa more than Rosemary or any of her other kids. Yeah. She just could do no wrong in Swanee's eyes. As far as Jim Cross, he was a farmer, and he was described as a quiet, kind of sinister man, just kind of there. (laughs) Who wants to be described as a quiet, (laughs) sinister man? He was just kind of there. He wasn't, like, bad. He was just there. Why is he sinister? I guess he was creepy. Oh, okay. He just kind of kept to himself. He didn't say much. In fact, many of Rosemary and Teresa's friends didn't have much to say about him because he was just so quiet and broody. He was just one of those types. Okay. But he comes into play later, so we'll get back to him. So Teresa was said to have been boy crazy from early on, which many young girls are. But she was described described as hypersexual from a very young age. She loved attention. You know, she got it at home. She expected to get it outside. Mm -hmm. Her good friend Janet would later say that she was obsessed with sex from an early age. Like, early elementary, junior high. And she seemed to just know everything about it, which back then was... Ridiculous. Yeah, especially for a girl to know that much. And she also competed with her sister, Rosemary, even though Rosemary wasn't competing. Teresa was going to compete with her. Rosemary wasn't into boys very much, but Teresa found it threatening, I think, that Rosemary, who was older, was developing and becoming a young, beautiful woman. And as we will see, all attention always has to be on Teresa in order for Teresa to be happy. But Teresa's whole world would come crashing down just one week before her 15th birthday when her mother, her biggest supporter, suddenly died at the age of 53. It was especially traumatic for Teresa because Swanee had picked Teresa up from school that day and they had gone out shopping and they were walking out of the store when Mrs. Cross just collapsed into Teresa's arms. Oh, Lord. Her heart had given out. Definitely nothing a 14-year-old girl should ever have to experience. not at all. After Swanee Cross's death, Rosemary took on the mother role in the Cross house and even worked a part-time job as a bookkeeper at a market to help with the family's bills. 15-year-old Teresa was not helpful, however. She went off the rails following her mother's death, despite her father being a shadow of his former self. You know, grief-stricken by the loss of his wife, right? And her sister trying to hold it together for everyone. So he was a shadow of the shadow that he was? Exactly. He was just always kind of there. He was a farmer by trade, but, I mean, he was just there, you know? But Teresa saw this as her time to bolt. She attempted to run away with her much older adult boyfriend. But as they were driving in his car, he got into an accident, and Teresa was brought home by the police. Eventually, Rosemary met a man named Jim Norris, and the pair married and moved off to start a family of their own, still living in Rio Linda. But this left Teresa 
alone with her father, Jim. And by this time, Jim wasn't doing so well. He had the beginning stages of Parkinson's oh, disease. Man. Yeah. And I think that kind of started, symptoms started early on. That's why people thought he was broody and quiet. I think Maybe. he was struggling. Maybe. Because they were older. It's not something easy to care for. His health was failing and he was unable to work. He was collecting disability, but it wasn't enough to keep him and Teresa afloat. So he was forced to put their home up for sale. The only home Teresa had ever known. So Teresa did the only thing she knew to do. She began looking for a man who would be willing to care for her and her ailing father. Yeah. Okay. And that brings us to lucky guy number one. Lucky man. <laughs> There's going to be a lot. You, sir, won the <laughs> jackpot in the shitstorm sweepstakes. Exactly. 16-year-old Teresa met 21-year-old Clifford Clyde Sanders. Clifford Clyde? Yeah. A farmhand originally from Alabama. There we go. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> when he was out cruising in front of her high school in Rio Linda. Teresa quickly wrapped Sanders around her little finger. At 16, Teresa was far more experienced than Sanders was sexually. And as a result, Cliff was smitten with the girl. According to Teresa's friend Janet, quote, she always had a big ego and liked to have power over other people, especially men. So she made him get down on his knees and ask her dad to give his consent to marry her. So she forced him to propose. Oh, okay. So Cliff Sanders did just that. And Teresa's dad, Jim Cross, reluctantly agreed to the union. And in September of 1962, he accompanied his daughter and Cliff Sanders on a weekend trip to Reno, Nevada, where the two were married. Yeah, well, he's got to go. She's only 16. Yes, James <laughs> had to be present because Teresa was only 16, so he had to give parental consent. Yeah. Teresa dropped out of high school the fall semester of her junior year because she was a married woman now. Shortly after the marriage, Cliff, Teresa, and her dad moved into a duplex in Rio Linda, and on July 16, 1963, Teresa gave birth to their first child, Howard Sanders. Now, Cliff was not a wealthy or a very skilled man, and he bounced around from job to job the first year of their marriage, but soon he was able to secure a steady union job, complete with insurance and a pension at a scaffolding company. So it was a good job, yeah. benefits. So he was doing well providing for the family. However, things were not going so well behind closed doors. No. I think that Cliff had somewhat of a wandering eye, and he enjoyed going out and drinking with the boys. And Teresa was a very jealous person, to say the very least. But Teresa did her share of going out and partying as well. I'm sure. She's only 16. Cliff, Cliff also suspected that Teresa was cheating on him. And when Teresa announced that she was pregnant with their second child, Cliff questioned whether or not the baby even was his. Mm -hmm. And she was just... Like, how could you? How dare you? Even. Well, the couple would fight viciously on both ends. I'm not excusing his abuse, but she was also abusive as well. They were toxic together. Oh, yeah. Neither of them could behave themselves, and it turned into a toxic, abusive relationship all around. Finally, things got so bad and so volatile between the two that Cliff decided that he had enough. He was going to leave. Yeah. Like, this is bad. So he packed his bags, and he threatened to beat Teresa, as he had before, if she didn't allow him to leave. Amongst his belongings that he was going to take with him 
was a Winchester lever action deer rifle. Mm-hmm. Well, just as Cliff was about to step out the front door, Teresa grabbed the gun, aimed it at her husband ch- husband's chest, and shot him through the heart. Oh. Teresa would later tell authorities, quote, I grabbed the gun to make him keep from hitting me, and it went off. And she said that was all she could remember. Of course. The coroner would later say that Cliff was shot from a distance. And because he, that's important. And because he had severe damage to his left hand and wrist, it showed that Cliff had held his hand up in a feeble attempt to shield himself from the bullet. So it was a defensive wound. So whether or not this was self-defense, I'll leave that up to you to decide. I had one opinion when I first started researching this case. And by the end of the story, I had a different one. So it's up to you. I'm just telling you the facts, right? Right. So Teresa was arrested and held in a jail in Sacramento to await her trial. In the meantime, her baby, Howard, was sent to live with acquaintances in Rio Linda. Now, remember, Teresa's pregnant and only 18. (laughs) And it was very difficult for the public to see Teresa as a cold-blooded murderer. As a pregnant 18-year-old. Yes, In fact, one member of Teresa's jury would refer to her as, quote, a poor little bunny. Mm-hmm. It was easy to feel sympathy for her, especially because there was evidence that she had, in fact, been an abused spouse right. before. So the trial began on September 10th, and Teresa pleaded not guilty. And after 12 days worth of testimony from witnesses on both sides, the jury deliberated for just three and a half hours before returning with a verdict of not guilty. Yep, figured that one. To be honest, we saw that coming. But here's what I didn't see coming. <laughs> the day after she was found not guilty, the day after she was acquitted, Teresa walked herself into the prosecuting attorney's office, grabbed Cliff's Winchester rifle, the murder weapon that the prosecuting attorney was holding for evidence, and said coldly, according to the DA, this is mine. And walked out. Okay. I mean, damn. Well, shit. I would. <laughs> it's a little. Like, okay, you can have it. Like, I would just be so thankful. You know, if I was truly, like, if I was defending myself, I would be so thankful at the chance of, you know, to have freedom, to not be an abused spouse and just raise my babies. Yeah. You know, and. You're not her. It's just crazy. You're not going to be on a podcast like this one day, so. Hopefully not. Yeah, I'm hoping so, too. <laughs> So Teresa is a free woman, but she's pregnant and she has nowhere to go. And no money. So she decides to find herself another man to help care for her and her young son. On any given evening or weekend, Teresa could be found out drinking and hanging out at the American Legion Hall. And during one of those outings, Teresa met a man named Estelle Lee Thornsbury, who went by Lee. So that's what we'll call him. Okay. Now, Teresa goes through many men in this story, but out of all of them, this relationship hits me right in the feelings because she really took advantage of this guy. She did that to all men, but this one just hits different. You'll see why. Okay. See, Lee was a disabled veteran. He was stationed in Holland and had dove into unfamiliar waters, literally. Well, he didn't know how deep the waters were when he dove in. So when he dove in, he broke his neck and his back. Oh, fun. He was now a quadriplegic and unable to control the muscles in his body below his shoulders. And he was confined permanently to a wheelchair. 
But what appealed to Teresa was the fact that Lee Thornsbury was receiving a very generous monthly mm-hmm. living allotment and being a single guy, unable to take fancy vacations and without a family to support, Lee was able, he was able to afford a super nice vehicle at the time. It was a 1965 Pontiac Bonneville. And when Teresa saw his car, I believe she saw dollar signs. Oh yeah, 100%. Teresa immediately hooked Thornsberry and before long, he was in love with her. He would do anything oh, for her. He let her drive his car whenever she wanted and she convinced him to loan her money on the reg. She used this money not to help with costs for baby Howard. Oh, of course not. Or anything productive, but rather she used it to keep up her appearance. She bleached her hair blonde and spent a small fortune at the salon every week getting facials and getting her nails done. Before long, there was a big diamond engagement ring on Teresa's Mm -hmm. finger. Teresa got a one-bedroom apartment thanks to Lee and then wasted no time going out and buying herself a whole new wardrobe. Of course. She spent every night out on the town and enjoyed being lavished with gifts from a man that would literally do anything for her. During the last few weeks of her pregnancy, Lee and Teresa moved in together, and he was right by her side when she delivered her second child, a little girl she named Sheila Sanders, on March 13, 1965. After the birth of Sheila, Lee rented a house in Sacramento, and he, Teresa, Howard, and Howard, who is now 16 months old, and baby Sheila all moved in together as one big happy family. So they're in a new home with a new baby, and Lee even fully furnished this place. Okay. Like, she, he let her pick out couches, appliances, and he bought it all. He's like, I'll do whatever. But things weren't going so great. Oh, no shit. Teresa almost immediately started going out for, quote, girls' nights and not coming home until the wee hours of the night, if at all, leaving Lee, who's in a wheelchair, to tend to her little ones. Lovely. Well, one morning while Teresa was sleeping off a hangover, Lee wheeled himself out to the driveway and opened the door to his Pontiac that he always let Teresa drive. And inside on the passenger seat, he found used condoms and Teresa's skimpy underwear. Oh. Teresa was having several affairs, one of which was was with Lee's best friend. And Lee took it for a while because he loved her and he loved the kids. One thing he had a hard time getting past, however, was the fact that she emotionally neglected her kids and openly favored Howard over baby Sheila, just as her just mother had baby, done. Right. Apparently, Teresa blamed Sheila because becoming pregnant with her started the chain of events leading up to her biological father's death. She, you know, her last husband, Cliff. Mm, mm, oh, yeah, it was the baby's fault. Yeah, which it's not rational at all to us, but in her mind, it worked. Despite not being rational, it's safe to say that from an early age, Sheila was not allowed to be, this This is what broke my heart, Sheila was not allowed to be picked up even when she cried to be comforted or if she was hurt. When Sheila did start to speak, Teresa would scream at her, like, shut up, you're not allowed to speak. Wow. Yeah. So we will see down the line that Sheila just for, for time starts talking all together and kind of stops developing as a fear of oh, yeah. repercussions from her mother. It's stunt the development hardcore. So guys, what I'm trying to say is that Teresa is just a really crappy person and she's even worse mom. Yeah, that's it. And Lee is seeing all of this. Good. Thankfully for Lee, he and Teresa do not ever make it down the aisle 
not because he didn't try, but rather because she found someone that she felt was way better. And I hope that he knows how lucky he is (laughs) to have escaped this. And that brings us to Teresa's next love interest, lucky husband number two. Now serving number three. Bob Knorr. Bob was a Marine two years younger than Teresa. Oh. So Teresa was 19 and Bob was 17. The pair met met when Bob flew home for Christmas leave in 1965, and Teresa quickly sank her claws into the handsome young Marine. Of course she did. The pair were hot and heavy while they were courting. Bob only knew about Teresa what she chose to tell him. So for a time, he had no idea that she even had two children, (laughs) much less that she had been acquitted for murdering her late husband. However, Bob's mom, she was smart. She was like, I don't like that girl. I don't like her. I see something's up with her. Yeah, most people probably did. Bob would later say, quote, my mother could see right through her. My parents told me even before I went off to Vietnam, she's no good for you. (laughs) But Bob was smitten. Following his Christmas leave in Sacramento, Nora returned to Hawaii to finish up his guerrilla training before being shipped off to Vietnam. He was back in Hawaii for three weeks before he received a phone call from Teresa. Teresa called to let him know that she had borrowed some money from some friends and she was flying out to see him. And he was like, okay, wonderful. Cool. She wasn't allowed to stay on base, of course. So Teresa moved into an apartment with some of Bob's acquaintances not too far away. And that's where she lived for the next three weeks. She has little babies at home. Fuck are the kids? She has little babies at home. Who's watching them? Yeah. By now, Bob was aware that Teresa had two children and that they were staying with friends while she came to visit him. And honestly, it was the honeymoon stage, and he's 17. He didn't care. He's like, okay, whatever. Well, February rolls around, and just before Bob's unit left for Vietnam, Teresa informed him that she was pregnant with his child. Mm. While in Vietnam, Bob saw some shit, as did most of them. He was shot on two occasions. Both were just flesh wounds, so he got lucky. But the third time, his unit was attacked, and it was really bad. His unit would suffer injuries after getting hit with a mine while walking on a bridge. Bob got shrapnel in his arms, legs, and back, and he was completely blown out of his boots, and the soles of his feet were gone. It's not good. So this time, Nor wasn't able to just be patched up at the field hospital as he had been before. Oh, yeah. He and the other casualties were flown to Okinawa for emergency surgery and skin grafts before being shipped back to Oakland, California Naval Hospital. Bob's war experience was officially over as of now. He was, he was done. And he did earn a Purple Heart for his sacrifice. For the next nine months, Bob was in and out of the hospital back in California. And Teresa, now heavily pregnant, was right by his side. She immediately started pushing for them to go ahead and get married right away. And Bob agreed. He was now over 18 by this time, and he didn't need his parents' approval. Mm -hmm. So against his parents' advice, Teresa and Bob were married in a civil ceremony on July 9th, 1966. Immediately after the ceremony, Teresa, Bob went back to the hospital, and Teresa found some low-income housing for them to live in and promptly moved her dad, Jim Cross, in with them. Okay. Teresa never wanted to stay home with the kids. 
enlisted the help of some of Bob's relatives to babysit her two kids while she concerned herself herself with things like her weekly hair, nail, and facial appointments. Oh, the important shit. Bob's aunt and uncle, Evie and Pat Works, gladly watched after little Howard and Sheila. However, it didn't take long for Evie to notice a few issues with the kids and how they were being raised. No. And I'm just bringing this up so you can see some early treatment of her kids, you know, before when she just had two and they were babies. Evie Works would say, and I quote, Howard could get away with anything, but Teresa was downright cruel to Sheila. And cruel she was. Like I had mentioned before, Sheila was never allowed to speak. And if she spoke, she was jerked up by one arm and spanked. If she spilled milk at breakfast time or spilled food, she was beaten. And remember, and Evie remembered one disturbing incident. She drove over to Teresa and Bob's to pick up the kids and found that Sheila, now a toddler, had her head completely shaved. Oh. Evie recalled, the minute I walked into the room, Sheila ran over to me and there were little cuts all over the top of her head. I asked, Teresa, what's the matter with her head? And Teresa said, I sat her on the chair and shaved her head. And every time I pulled that razor, I wanted to go down into her brain with it. But I just didn't have the guts to. So that's lovely. Oh, that's fucking fantastic. Okay. That's... (laughs) Jesus, good Lord. (laughs) I mean, I don't even know what to... To a toddler? Okay. And everyone's just like, oh, okay. Well, I'm going to leave you to it. So I... I, I, No one's like, holy fuck. I feel like... People must have been like, she's got to be joking, you know? Like, obviously, she's having a bad day, and she's joking. joking. But I, I know I wouldn't either, but that's almost not even real. That's what I'm saying. You couldn't even joke about that and have it be funny. like. Yeah, it's just messed up, dude. So as Teresa's pregnancy progressed into the final stages, Evie and Pat Works had the kids full-time, Howard and Sheila, and they noticed abrasions all over Sheila's ankles and feet. So they quickly ran Sheila over to a doctor. Right. The doctor was appalled. Sheila, no more than 18 months, was suffering from bed sores from being forced to stay in bed for days at a time. Oh, my. Like the elderly get bed sores when they're bedridden. Yeah. Not very mobile, active children. It's it's horrible. Yeah. Heartbreaking. And even more heartbreaking, at this time, for a time, Sheila was mute. She was just too terrified to speak because she would get beaten. On September 27th, 1966, Teresa, mother of the year, gave birth to her third child, a little girl she named Susan Marlene Knorr. Bob was there for the birth of his daughter, but unfortunately, he had to go right back into the hospital after. He was spending a lot of time there, still due to complications from as many surgeries that he'd had. Well, Teresa didn't like this one bit. She was convinced that Bob was flirting with the nurses. Of course. So one day she told Bob, according to him, quote, if I ever catch you fooling around on me or if you try to leave, I wouldn't hesitate to shoot you. And this is when Bob was like, because he was aware of how her last marriage, you know, yeah. yeah. He was like, was that (laughs) self-defense? Like, this is where he started questioning I would too. Yeah. it It made him have a few doubts. So as soon as Teresa was able to bring the new baby home, she moved out of the low-income housing in Sacramento 
and into a house right next to the Naval Hospital solely for the purpose of keeping a close eye on her oh, husband. Of course. Not because it's easy for him to get treatment that he needs or anything Oh, like yeah, that. she didn't care about that. It was such a trusting and healthy relationship. Sarcasm. Right. Teresa did the next logical thing. One year after the birth of her chi- her third child, she gave birth to her fourth, William Robert Knorr. Yeah, that's just what she needs is more in kids. And after William's birth, things just really started to plummet downhill for the couple. Bob recalled that Teresa didn't even trust him enough to go to work. She wouldn't let him go to work. Like his job was actually at risk here. Lovely. With the military. (laughs) He was under her control and she was just so volatile that he complied to keep the peace a lot of the time. But despite their issues... The couple yet had another baby together, Robert Knorr Jr. And after the birth of her fifth child, it just got so bad that the uh, that Bob eventually left the family home and Teresa filed for divorce. At least she didn't shoot him. Yeah, that's always a good thing. But before the divorce was finalized, the couple decided to give their marriage one last try. Oh, shit. This time in a different location, Spokane, Washington. They didn't just move to Washington for a change of location either. They were, well, she was on the run from bill collectors in California because she had racked up thousands upon thousands of dollars in credit card debt with her spending habits. Once in Spokane, the couple discovered that they were once again expecting. Birth control, people. I know. But not surprisingly, there were no improvements to this marriage. It was just same shit, different state. What did you expect? Teresa was still overly controlling of Bob. She was sure that he would cheat on her. So she barely even let him leave the house to go to work. She wouldn't even let him watch television programs with women in them. (laughs) However, she never hesitated to leave him to go out at night to the bars and stay out to all hours of the night, which he was never allowed to do. He's going to cheat on her with the girl from Duke's Hazard through the TV? Down the road. Bob would later take a psychology course, and it wasn't until then that he learned about projection. Oh, yeah. And he talked about this. Oh, yeah. He said, despite having remained faithful to Teresa, her accusations never ceased. However, she was projecting her own wrongdoings onto me, which is very, (laughs) I know, which is very typical behavior of a cheater. Oh, yeah. They project. It's gaslighting. It's gaslighting. So... Just a fun little manipulation. It's, yeah. It's a manipulation tactic. The couple separated in May, and Good. in July of 1970, their divorce was finalized. But she was not finished with him yet. Poor man. Even though they were now divorced, she still very much regarded Bob as her property. And when Bob began dating his future wife, Georgia, Teresa made certain to make their lives a living hell. She stalked the new couple and harassed them endlessly. She called authorities on Georgia. I mean, it was just nonstop. And when they would ignore her, she would withhold the children from seeing Bob. (laughs) Teresa would lie to the kids and tell them horrific lies about their father being a pedophile, an occultist, and a drug addict. So on the rare occasion that the kids did see their dad, they were terrified of him. They were little, you know? On August 5th, 1970, their sixth and final child, remember they're apart, but she was pregnant. Again. Their sixth and final child, thank God, Teresa Marie Knorr, known as Terry, 
was born. And sadly, this is heartbreaking, but I kind of get it. Bob and Georgia were far too terrified of Teresa to even be present at the hospital for her birth. So, and I know that people say, that's your daughter. Come on, man. You know, but he went through some shit with her. Yeah. And this is also a lady that said she'd shoot him if she ever left. He ever left her. He left her. Well, Bob eventually married Georgia later that same year. So Teresa did what Teresa does best. She went out hunting for a new husband to take care of her and her six children. She doesn't take care of them. She wouldn't let Bob see the kids. So she had all six children. Yeah. Why would she let him see him? Teresa met Ron Pulliam, husband number three, I think. I think it's three. Yeah. Husband number yes. three. No. Yeah. Yeah. Actual husband number three. Yeah. She didn't marry Lee. Yeah. She dated him. Yeah. That's right. She met him while she was working at a local topless bar, but she wasn't a stripper. She was a server. So, and Ron was a good guy. He loved her kids like his own and he loved Teresa. In fact, Ron even for a time was able to convince Teresa to lay off torturing her ex-husband and his new wife. And for a very short time, very short time, she allowed them because of Ron to see the, um, she allowed her ex-husband to see the kids okay like on the weekends but Teresa continued even then to weaponize the children against Bob and their stepmom it became such a stressful situation for all the parties involved that finally Bob called Ron up because he was terrified of Teresa yeah and he said look we we can't see the kids anymore we can't you know we have a family of our own now and we can't do that so it's a sad situation all around. And I'm sure you will not be surprised to hear that Ron ended, he ended up filing for divorce from Teresa in 1972. No. Yeah. Craziness. So after being a mom to six, a single mom to six children for a while, Teresa just could not make ends meet on her own. Okay. So she went out searching once again for a man who could fix her situation. Right. Teresa met 60-year-old. Oh. Yeah, twice her age, Chet Harris, in a bar in 1976. And the couple were married three days later. Oh, okay. Three days. Real quick. This would be her final marriage. Teresa, at this time, was in her 30s, and her kids ranged in ages from 7 to 13. Not only was Chet heavily into pornography, he was also, according to Teresa and some of her kids as well, dabbling in the dark side of the occult. Oh, okay. The type of occult that liked to take advantage of children. Yeah, I figured that was coming. As far as I could find, there was never any sexual abuse on his part. However, according to the kids, as we will soon hear, he was, I think, this is Courtney's opinion, not fact. I believe he was grooming one of Teresa's children. Okay. But we'll get back to that. So aside from being a creep, Chow was really cruel to the kids. He hated her kids. He had names for all of them. He referred to Robert as, quote, the killer, and William as, quote, the coward. He called Terry the little stripper. She was the seven-year-old. Yeah. And Sheila, who had grown up with special needs, no doubt due to neglect and abuse, was referred to as, quote, Susan's dog. Chet called her that because even though Sheila was a bit older than Susan, she followed Susan around, undoubtedly because she felt safe with her sister, you know? Yikes. Susan was Chet's favorite. He gave her extra attention and took her on outings 
Just the two of them. It's not creepy at all, right? <laughs> he also introduced Susan to witchcraft. And as you can probably imagine, Teresa was not happy as this went against her religious beliefs. Oh, she has religious beliefs? That's but she was also jealous of the attention that was Susan was getting. Now her religious beliefs that she never had? Oh, but yeah. No, she she is 100% jealous. going to be a very staunch Christian here coming up soon. So I, I'm sure she was developing that. This is probably what pushed her over the edge, to be honest with you. After just three months of living together as a family, three months, the marriage ended. Oh, no shit. Chet tossed Teresa and her six kids out and for the first time in a long time, Teresa would live alone with her kids, and she would never remarry. Although, he kept seeing Susan behind Teresa's back. Oh. And this is where, unfortunately, things go from bad to pure hell for Teresa's children. Oh, so it wasn't hell yet. Okay. After, after the divorce from Chet, Teresa worked as a nurse in a nursing home for a time. To make ends meet. However, she suffered a back and hip injury at work, which forced her to stay home. Over time, she eventually turned into a recluse and began drinking heavily. To make ends meet, she relied heavily on her now young adult son, Howard, to bring home the bacon. See, Howard had now turned to drugs, oh. and he had begun to sell them out of the family's home. And Teresa didn't care. As long as he was bringing in money. Yeah. Teresa also began reading to her children from the Bible incessantly. And she took the verse to heart that says, spare the rod, spoil the child. She lived by that one. Oh. She would beat the children with a wooden paddle that she referred to as the board of education. The board of education. That's that's pretty, I mean, it's It's uncomfortable. It's awful. I shouldn't be laughing at that, but it's, (laughs) it's a clever name. I'll give it that. Oh, my gosh. It didn't stop there. Terry, Teresa's youngest daughter, would later say, quote, when mom got drunk, she would lick steak knives before throwing them at us to test her aim. Okay. She would have them stand against the wall. And just fucking chuck knives at them. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. At one point, she even held a gun against Terry's temple and said, I shot once. I can do it again. Just cruel. That's not terrifying. cruel. Teresa wasn't the only abuser in the house, guys. And trigger warning here, okay? This isn't good. I mean, none of it's good, but this is just extra bad to me. According to Terry, at the age of six, I was sodomized by my brother Howard, she said. He molested me, but he was expressing his sexuality, so I didn't blame him. Now, I'd like to kind of explain this not that there's an explanation. She's excusing a behavior that is, inex- is inexcusable. Howard has no idea what love is growing up. And love is torture, love is abuse. And, and, and the same goes for the people he abused. Terry, his little sister. They have no idea. Yeah, I know. I, do, I mean, it's, it's understandable like why he feels that way, but it's not excusable. Why. No, I mean, go to jail, suffer. It's fucking wrong. But it's sad that there's excuses for him, and it's sad that he. It's sad. It's just sad all it's around. Just sad. There's not excuses for him. It's no. just sad that he could feel that way. But it's, there's no excuses. But it's sad that the siblings, even like as an adult, Terry said that. Yeah. He was experimenting 
because they were all raised the same. Yeah. So she can almost see why, and that's a sad state to be see, in. She does, she's not like a normal person that sees that's not how you're supposed to be raised. Right, exactly. Robert Jr. also described how he was molested and humiliated by Howard. He said that one time Howard ordered him to mount his older sister, Susan. When Robert refused, Howard raped Susan and made Robert watch. Oh. I'm just saying this. It, I mean, it does have something to do with the story per se, but it, I'm saying this is to demonstrate and paint a picture what kind of household it was. Household. Yeah. Especially this next part. Okay. Each child, they just had enough. Like, there's, I'm getting sodomized. I'm getting, like, this is messed up. This is fucked up, yeah. So they all came together and came to Teresa with an account of how Howard was harming them. The younger ones did. But Teresa didn't care. She didn't give a fuck. She made excuses for him. In fact, she blamed it all on Bob Nor and say that, you know, he was a pedophile. So he probably either rubbed off on Howard or did it to him. Okay. So, which there was no evidence of Bob Nor ever right committing. She's just so we can't say that. You in, know, in the typical you know narcissist type of personality that she is. He's bringing in the, the money. On, he's taking the, care of us. Putting the blame on everybody else. He's, yeah. he's the golden child. She Teresa did not give a flying flip about any of her kids aside from her boys. Not even I. I would even say a select. Few of the boys. Right. Her boys could get away with a lot more than her girls could. But one child she had particular disdain for, and that was Susan. Susan was a smart young woman now and was the only child brave enough to challenge her mom. She was also blossoming into a beautiful teenage girl, and Teresa was outwardly jealous of her. Of course. At one point, sometimes during uh, Susan's ninth grade year, she had had enough of her mother's abuse, and she ran away. She actually wanted to get help for her siblings. Yeah. But authorities promptly found her, and despite her desperate pleas, Susan was returned to Teresa. They were like, she's fine. Teresa, your mom's fine. Your mom's fine. She's you just fine. need to behave, okay? So it was after this that Susan suffered the horrific consequences for her actions. She was beaten by her, her mother upon her return home. And after her mother finished with the beating, each of her siblings were ordered to line up and take turns punching her in the stomach. If they didn't punch hard enough, they had to punch again. Hmm. I do want to expand on this and say that her mother was so calculated that she would put on uh, leather gloves to not leave marks on her kids, like cut marks or anything. Mm -hmm. And that's what she beat her kids with when it wasn't the Board of Education. Well, I mean, it doesn't leave marks on the kids as much as a normal handprint would, but it also doesn't leave marks on her hands, more importantly. Right. She was then handcuffed, Susan was, for an extended period of time and kept underneath the dining room table where she was forced to eat. Wow. Get this, guys. <laughs> Teresa, you know, she's believing that Susan is meeting with Chet and into witchcraft now. Okay. That's very important to remember. Teresa thought that Susan was using witchcraft and spells to keep herself thin and in turn make Teresa gain weight because oh. Teresa was putting on weight. She was it, getting older now. She put a fat spell on her. So she would force feed Susan with a spoon, chipping her teeth. Ugh. 
At nighttime, Susan was tied to her own bed, and each of her brothers took turns watching her throughout the day and night to make sure she didn't escape. Lovely. Eventually, Susan didn't need to be handcuffed. Her spirit was broken, I believe. Oh, I bet. To the point that she no longer would attempt to escape. Her last runaway attempt proved that no one on the outside could help her, so why even try? One day, Teresa, her son Robert, and all of Teresa's girls were home. William and Howard were out. I believe Howard wasn't living there at this time because he was probably 20-something. Teresa, now fully delusional, believed that Susan was a witch. So on this day, Teresa cornered her daughter and began to yell at her for casting a spell to make her fat. Okay. In other words, Teresa blamed Susan for her own weight gain. Right. Teresa then hit Susan with a belt a few times. Robert, the only male sibling present at the time, would later say, Susan was up against a wall between the bathroom door and my mother's bedroom. I was told to restrain her. The next thing I know, there was a shot fired. Susan had been shot in the chest by her own mother. The bullet entered just under Susan's left breast before the young girl fell backwards into the bathtub. However, this is not when Susan dies. Oh. Susan did not die. Teresa switched, almost like, I'm snapping my fingers, like multiple personalities. She switched from a deranged abuser to a caring nurse. Okay. And she quickly began to treat Susan's wound. Like, oh shit, what did I do? In fact, she would apologize to Susan. My bad. And Susan would say, quote, I forgive you. Because she just doesn't want to get the yeah. sh- She's not kicking the shit out of her for the first time in like six months or whatever it is. Teresa gave Susan a dose of antibiotics to stop any infection, as well as painkillers to dull the pain. And Susan would ultimately survive this attempt on her life, and that's what I'm going to call it. Yeah, it was was a murder attempt. As Susan recovered, Teresa moved her family to a small apartment in North Sacramento, where Susan's ordeal continued. Lovely. From her early teens, Susan had been forced by her mother to engage in sex work to support the family and all of her earnings were taken by Teresa the moment she returned home. Mm. Despite this, Susan found herself enjoying the work because it meant that she was able to leave the house for a bit. Yeah, I get that. One day, Susan actually found the courage to ask Teresa for a one-way ticket to Alaska to start a new life, explaining that Teresa would never have to see or hear from her again. She was very smart. She knew her mom hated her. Yeah, I'm out. Her mom was jealous. Just let me Look, be out. If I go, you'll never see from, hear from me again, see me again, nothing. I'm out of the picture. I won't give you any more trouble. To Susan's surprise, Teresa agreed to let her go to Alaska under one condition. Susan, without any other options, agreed. So Teresa retrieved a bottle of antipsychotic medication that she had pocketed from a nursing job and gave a handful to Susan, who washed them down with a quart of whiskey. Susan then laid face down on a blanket in the dining room and passed out, thankfully, because what happened next wasn't anything that anyone would want to be awake for. See, the only way Teresa would allow Susan to leave was if the bullet lodged in her back was removed so that there would be no evidence of her abuse if Susan ever decided to speak of it down the road. Okay. Because she had been shot by her mother. Right. And she could go to authorities with that. Yeah. Susan's younger brother, Robert, who was 15 at the time, 
was tasked with performing the surgery under his mother's orders, of course. He cut into his sister's skin and muscle with an exacto knife oh. and located the bullet just under Susan's left shoulder blade. Robert was shocked by the lack of blood. And he mentioned it, and his mother stated that it was because the demon had possessed Susan's body and made her, quote, undead. And that's why she wasn't bleeding. Oh, okay. Susan eventually woke up from the procedure, and it was immediately clear something was very wrong. She alternated between states of unconsciousness and screaming out in pain. Teresa pumped Susan full of antibiotics and painkillers, but... Soon she came down with a high fever, and she began hallucinating. She started telling her siblings that she was watching her life flash before her eyes like a movie. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've heard from people who have had close encounters with death before, that they see their life like Like play like a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that too. It's like a common depiction of how flashing before your eyes kind of things works. When Susan's eyes turned yellow from jaundice and the skin on her back turned black, Teresa claimed that it was the devil revealing itself inside of her body. Yeah, no, it's not. (laughs) It's not medical at all. Sepsis or anything like that. Jesus. Gangrene. Exactly. She also made Susan wear infant diapers when she could no longer walk to the bathroom on her own. Of course, Teresa refused to take her dying child to a hospital. So she came up with a plan. She told her other children that they had to get rid of Susan because she was inevitably going to die. So they would have to kill her. Oh, yeah. We just got to get rid of her. So on July 16th, 1984, Teresa went around and collected all the photographs she had of Susan in the house and burned them in the backyard. What daughter? Exactly. Then she waited for nightfall. As midnight approached, Teresa loaded the car and drove down Interstate 80 with two of her sons, Robert and William, who she forced to come with her. The two boys sat in the back seat with their unconscious sister, Susan, between them. Very much still alive, but unconscious at the time. Thank God. Yeah, no shit. Inside the trunk of the car was all of Susan's belongings. Teresa's goal was to ultimately erase Susan from this earth completely. She never existed. They reached the secluded Squaw Creek area, and Teresa stopped the car. She had William and Robert get Susan out and lay her on a blanket with all of her possessions. William, who was 16 at the time, zipped up his sister's hooded sweatshirt she was wearing because he was concerned that she might get cold. Teresa then ordered Robert to get a tank of gasoline from the trunk of the car and pour it over Susan. And they did. Wow. And they lit her on fire. The three of them drove home in silence until a bird would smack into the windshield of their car. After this happened, Teresa turned to William and Robert and said that the bird was the sacrifice and that God thinks we did a good thing, end quote. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That was her daughter. And these poor boys. They didn't just kill her and get rid of her. They, I mean, they attempted to erase her from their lives. Can you imagine being the youngest one in this family and growing up when you're still little and then finding out all this shit happened when you get older? You're like, what? She was very aware of all this happening. And you'll, that she was the one that called in. Okay. And said exactly what happened. Right, but she was older at the time when she called in, I thought. When she anyway, called in, well, no, when she called in, she was 23. But she was, what, seven, eight when this happened? Just awful. 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, you can imagine being her when this is happening when you're seven or eight, and then you hit 20, 21, 22, and all, you, all of a sudden it all clicks, and yeah. you remember everything, and you're like, what the fuck did I grow up in? I know. I, Could you imagine I know. being like that? Like, no. oh, my Lord. No, I can't. I, I have a heart Talk for all these therapy, kids. Bill. All these kids. Well, most of them are probably in prison. Once they were back home, Teresa ordered her daughter, Sheila, to scrub the floor where Susan had spent her final days. I won't describe what she had to clean up. I can imagine. Like her youngest sister, Sheila had endured a heavily controlled life at the hands of her mom. Aside from running the odd errand, she was kept at the home and forced into sex work to line her mom's pockets. Exactly. Fucking haircuts get expensive. And seeing what her mother was now capable of, Sheila was terrified that she would become her mother's next target. And she was not wrong. Right. In the winter of 1984, Sheila Sanders was riding her bike to pick up a pack of cigarettes for her mom, one of the few errands she was allowed to do, when she was accidentally hit by a car. While she was recovering from her <laughs> very minor... Why does that tell me he's going to piss her mom off? While she, <laughs> You're not wrong. While she was recovering from her very minor injuries at home, Teresa started to tell her other children that Sheila had died in the accident. The fuck? And that a demon had taken over her body. Holy shit. It wasn't long before Sheila found herself suffering from an increase in abuse. When Teresa became convinced that she had contracted a sexually transmitted disease from Sheila after the pair had shared the same toilet. Yeah. What the fuck? She punished punished her daughter by handcuffing her to the dining room table and force feeding her. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's what she did to the other one. In one of the books I used for this case, called Whatever Mother Says, very appropriate. Very appropriate. <laughs> Sheila com- uh, once confided in her mother that she was depressed. She was like, I'm, I'm depressed. I need help. So Teresa went and got her a gun, handed it to her, handed it to her daughter, and said, if you're so depressed, kill yourself. So Sheila actually, and this will show you the state she was in. Sheila held the gun to her temple and and pulled the trigger. Yeah. And the gun clicked. It wasn't loaded. Jeez. And that's just cruel. I Super like cruel. cruel isn't a the I can I don't even have a word. I'm sorry. Cruel is the word. It is just it is a pure It's beyond cruel. That's your baby. Yeah. And the, oh my god. But she she did all this talk about projection and stuff earlier. She doesn't have a man. She was projecting it on the man everything she was doing. Now she now has to have, are, she always has to have a target. There always has girls. to be a target. Obviously, girls are more yeah. threatening. When to she her. doesn't have a man that she, or like a, a husband or a boyfriend that she can project on, she's going to turn on her girls. On June 19th, 1985, Susan actually had had enough. And bless her heart, she fought back after being slapped with her mo- for, by her mother for refusing to eat. She kicked Teresa in the leg. And Teresa started screaming like a little beach. She said that her shin was broken from the kick. Which, whatever. No one cares. Later that day, obviously, Teresa was pissed yeah. because she was kicked by her daughter. The boys to do something. So Teresa ordered William and Robert to restrain Sheila and lock her up in the linen closet. And we're not talking about a nice big linen. We're talking like a one-by-one linen closet. Yeah, like just big enough to put linens in. You can't it. move. Yeah. And it's a one-bedroom apartment, so you can imagine. Teresa, I mean, Sheila struggled, but she wasn't a match for her brothers. They were a lot bigger than her at the time. Well, they jammed their sister inside this small, not ventilated space 
And then it's already not ventilated. And then her mom, Teresa, came and stuffed towels like underneath between the door and the floor to muzzle all the screams and her cries. And then Teresa blasted the TV so that the neighbors wouldn't hear anything. Oh. Days later, Teresa made a trip to the store, leaving 14-year-old Terry alone in the house with Sheila. Well, Terry, the little one, she took this as her chance. Like, let me let my sister out for a little bit, even well, for a little bit. Well, just to help her yeah. because she hadn't had anything to eat or drink in forever. Yeah, yeah. So she opened the linen closet door, and that caused Sheila to fall out onto her side with her arms still restrained behind her back. And she was wearing nothing but underpants and socks. Sheila was drenched in sweat and pleading for a drink. Her siblings were forbidden by their mother to give Sheila food or water, but Terry went and got a beer and held it like up to her sister's. Yeah, and held it up to her sister's lips. But then she heard her mom come home and slam the car door. So against Sheila's protest, Terry pushed her back into the stifling hot closet and shut the door. And this decision would haunt Terry for the rest of her life. But she understood that if she was caught, Sheila wouldn't be the only one that was in that closet. It would be her and Sheila, and they would both be dead. Yeah. So, I mean, she did the right thing. Later, Terry heard Sheila hallucinating from the closet. She was saying, there's a light above me. I think it's a hole. I'm going to climb. I'm going to climb inside of it. And then Terry heard several thumps followed by silence. On June 24th, 1985, several days after Terry heard that, the smell became unbearable for Terry. It was a smell of decay and decomposition. Yeah. And everyone else was just kind of living with it. Oh, yeah. Gross. But Terry's oh, like, I can't. That's nasty. I can't do this anymore. So she found a set of pink pillowcases and she used them to line the inside of a cardboard box before asking William and Robert to get Sheila's body, her sister's body from the closet and place her inside. Sheila Mm. had died days before. 100%. Then Teresa, I guess seeing that this was, okay, and now it's time to get rid of the body. She tasked Robert and William once again to load up one of their sister's bodies, this time into the trunk of her car. Meanwhile, Teresa made Terry stay behind and clean the linen closet where her older sister had been kept. Gross. Yeah. Teresa then drove to the town of Truckee. After disposing of Sheila's remains in a remote area, a police car actually pulled up behind them to see what they were up to. Oh, God. Yeah. Here we go. Well, William would later say that he was... Like I was positive that we were done for because our car stunk so bad. It smelled like a dead person. It smelled horrible. And he was also relieved. Like, okay, this is over. I'm going to be taking it. Like, this is over. I won't have to deal with this anymore. Yeah, there's there's an end. Just the horrible torture. Everyone doing what they're supposed to be doing for her because they're afraid of what the fuck she's going to do to them, right? Like, it's like her sister putting her sister back in the closet because... If she didn't, she Yeah, they have no idea. Are we going to be next? The officer didn't pick up on what was going on, and he let the three go. Of course. 
He's like, like okay. In every case I've ever fucking heard, Ed Kemper had blood all over I was going to say, it reminded me of Ed Kemper when he was co- literally covered head to toe in blood, blood all over the back seat. And the cop was like, you have a good day, sir. Go have, have fun. Day, sir. This guy pulls Paint up your house like, red. This guy's walking out here in the woods and he's like, really smells like something died. Y'all people have a good day. <laughs> I'm going to go find that skunk <laughs> that died. That's not a skunk. That's a very different smell. I know, but Jesus. When Sheila's body was found, they actually incorrectly connected her murder to a homicide in Texas for a time. Yeah. However, we know that's not the case. (laughs) At the beginning of this episode, I detail how Susan's burned remains were found, right? Remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at this point in our story, both Sheila and Susan are both now Jane Doe's because Sheila's body was found first. Yeah, I have a question on that. Yes. How long after they dumped the body was, was Sheila's body found? I don't know. Okay. I have no no clue. Well, the only reason I ask is, like, if it was a couple days, I'd look at that cop and be like, we found a body, right, where you found the dead smell with a bunch of people. Why the fuck did you not? Yeah, I wonder if it was, like, sheriff or... So, everyone's free. Sheila and Susan are both Jane Doe's. And as far as Teresa was concerned, she had gotten away with murdering two of her kids. Really gotten her third murder she's gotten away with. Yeah, absolutely. However, Teresa was starting to grow paranoid because, and I hate to say this, in the linen closet where her her daughter Sheila had been kept, there was a huge dark stain from her bodily fluids. Yeah. Well, they had- She had decomposed there. Decayed. She had decayed a little bit there, but even if if not, if she had bled or, you know- urinated or defecated in there. They Which she did. It's not like they cleaned it. Mm-mm. It was sitting there for days on days on end. It's going to stain a carpet or a floor. There was also an unmistakable smell of death and rot in the apartment. Yeah. They I couldn't get rid of. really ever been around a place that has that. It, no, it, I have it, not. It Thank God. Leave. It does not. Hope. Hope Come I on. never have to. It does not leave. It like literally like it saturates into everything. So Teresa tasked her poor youngest daughter, Terry, to take action on her behalf since all of her boys had moved out and Terry was the only child left behind yeah. after this. Okay. In September of 1986, Terry emptied three cans of lighter fluid all throughout the family's North Sacramento apartment and struck a match because her mom told her to. Yeah, and it's, it's far worse of a consequence to not do it than whatever you're going to do. Terry leaped out of a window just as the flames started coming up the walls. She then ran straight to a hotel nearby, passing several fire trunks on their way to put out the fire. (laughs) And her mom was there waiting for her. Oh, okay. The fire had been Teresa's idea, and she had promised Terry that if she burned down their apartment, then Terry would be allowed to move out and go be free. Okay, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I don't blame you, Terry. I'd be, I'd be like, yeah. Oh, I haven't hurt anybody. I just got burned. I'm out. (laughs) Exactly. Need a gas. So, of course, Terry, still a teenager, jumped on this opportunity. What? She couldn't have been more than 16 at the time. She don't give a shit. Everybody everybody wants to get out of this lady's house. Well, she's the only surviving daughter of this bitch. Yeah, exactly. So, Terry uh, jumped on this opportunity to escape her tyrant of her mother. And Teresa held true to her word. Everyone in this family went their separate ways after the arson. Period. Well, Teresa relocated to Salt Lake City, Utah, where she underwent a complete physical transformation. Okay. She became a practicing Mormon, 
and uh, kept herself decked out with expensive clothes and makeup. Of course. Of course. course. That's her MO. She also began wearing a short blonde wig to conceal her long, dark hair. And she was unrecognizable, really. And her children were all but dead to her, even the four remaining children that she hadn't killed. Even her her favorite? (laughs) Yeah, Howard. Then one day, years later in 1993, Terry, now 23 and married, sat and watched an episode of America's Most Wanted, hosted by John Walsh. Our boy. We all know. We're all familiar. The show focused on unsolved crimes and fugitives. So Terry decided to call in and share her story. I wanted to go ahead and do a little side note. Terry had been telling her husband and people, law enforcement, of her ordeal. No one believed her. Everyone's probably like, okay, you were young. Your mom was not that bad. So according to her brother, um, she had been arrested like for misdemeanors and stuff down the road. And every time she was arrested, she was like, y'all need to look into my mom. My mom murdered people. My mom murdered my sisters. And everyone's like, okay, whatever. Like, Shut up. Shut up. Yeah, you're just trying to get out of it. Well, so she decided to call in uh, to the number that they provided at the end of America's Most Wanted episode. The the number, yeah. And the woman on the other end of the line directed Terry to call the county authorities where the murders took place. I guess maybe she talked to them beforehand and then told Terry, go ahead and call in, which Terry did. And that's where this whole episode began, eight years after the discovery of Susan's burned remains. Right. Terry was, she was able to give them enough detail about the specific crime scene of their charred Jane Doe eight years prior, and they believed her. It was namely that she was buried with a gold ring on her, or she was sent out there wearing a gold ring and a yellow hoodie, and it was just all to a T. Right. And authorities spent the next several days trying to locate Teresa, and it was a difficult task since Teresa had gone through so many various surnames in the previous years. I mean, she's she kept changing her name. Yeah. But luckily, she was now going by her last name given to her at birth, which was Cross. Oops. Ten days after Terry's call into America's Most Wanted, Sergeant John Fitzgerald arrived on the doorstep of a home in East Salt Lake City. A middle-aged woman referring to herself as Mrs. Cross answered the door. She had been working as the, this is funny, live-in caregiver of the home's owner. I'm sorry, what? An elderly woman named Alice Sullivan. What is she, Dorothy Apuente? Listen to this. Now, this is kind of a side note, but Mrs. Sullivan, she had daughters and granddaughters. Well, Teresa bought like some expensive Christmas presents for Mrs. Sullivan's granddaughters and told Mrs. Sullivan, I wasn't able to spoil um, children of my own since I was never blessed with daughters. Wow. And it's like, you killed, two you of the three. killed them. <laughs> Are you serious? She's just a yeah. She's just insane. Okay. So the police show up. Mrs. Cross invited them inside. She was super polite. Like, Hey, what are y'all doing here? Yeah. Well, initially, upon questioning, she was reluctant to admit anything, but she eventually revealed that she was going by her maiden name, and her actual name was, in fact, Teresa Knorr. Teresa remained calm when she was shown the warrant for her arrest. 
when it came time to take Teresa into custody, she actually tried to escape through a side door of the house. Like, she's a 47-year-old woman at this time. Trying to outrun cops. Stop. (laughs) But, of course, she was apprehended. As the horrors of what Teresa had done over the years came to light, anyone who knew the woman was shocked, especially those who knew Well, especially those who knew her when she was a nurse for the elderly in Utah. I get the people that knew her after. No, but if you, even the children outside of the home never alluded to abuse because they just thought, and I saw an interview with William, they were never allowed to go to friends' house. Yeah, no, I, no I get all that. Like, like the family didn't know any different, but how did people outside the world not ever suspect? She was hugely big on how she was perceived. Her outward persona, it's still her crazy. looks, it's still crazy the front lawn was always like, well manicured. It's still crazy to me that everyone was like, I know. It's so shocking. But it was her private life that was a mess. I never, know, never the side that anyone on the outside could see. That was all pristine, you know? I guess. I mean, it was just, I mean, she was so two-faced. Nobody could marry the two personalities. Even Bob Knorr, as much as he hated this woman... He had no idea she was capable of this. No, I know. You know? I mean, this is, it's insane. It's not, but I mean, at the same time, you're looking at it, you're like, you just look at people that know her. She didn't live anywhere very long. She was here for a couple of years, there for a couple of years. Yeah. Like five different marriages. Like at some point, like, yeah. and everyone's like, oh, that's shocking. No, it's like, there's warning signs the whole time. Something's wrong. Not warning signs of this, but there's something going on. Red flags. <laughs> the trial commenced and her remaining children played an important part of her hearing, as you can probably imagine, they were there. In exchange for his testimony, all charges against Robert were dropped except one count of accessory after the fact. He pled guilty and was sentenced to three years in prison. William, in exchange for his testimony, was sentenced to probation and mandatory therapy. Okay. Teresa Nora was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and two special circumstances circumstances charges, multiple murder and murder by torture, which, fair enough. At so first— just, just to clarify— No, that, go ahead. Special, yeah. A lot of people don't know what special circumstances yeah, I didn't know charges what that meant. are. So when you have things like a murder or other really violent, horrific crimes, I think rape and a couple other in some states uh, fall under these, you can add extra charges— which is what they what that circum special circum if you meet sodomy like all that stuff right like if yeah. you do certain things in the commission of the crime you can mm-hmm. add these extra charges which basically just extra fucks you in the long right. run right exactly like, so if you torture someone to death you can add torture the prosecution murder came. by torture just, yeah you can have first degree murder and all the normal charges but now you can add an extra charge of murder by torture which just it just makes it it's just trying to make it more evil than a regular murder is really what they're trying to do. And fair enough, right? They're, truly, they're really trying to mark this person with charges that are like, this is just exceptionally fucked up. At first, Teresa had the goal to plead not guilty. Everyone does. <clears throat> but once she heard of her son's plea agreements to testify against her, she changed her plea to guilty real quick. Real quick. Trying to quickly strike a deal before she gets fucked. To avoid the death penalty. Because yeah. she doesn't want to die. As soon as she knows her two sons are getting pretty much immunity for the murders... She's like, oh, oh yeah, because they, they can say some shit. They helped her with both murders. Yeah, because her boys, like, she did. Yeah, she's yeah. gonna be like, okay, I'm she was her worst with them. On October seventeenth, nineteen ninety-five, 
Teresa was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. She is currently, she's still alive, serving her sentence in the California Institution for Women in Chino, California. Chino. Her next parole hearing, guys, is in July of 2024. Yeah, but see, the, the beauty of those special circumstances charges mm-hmm. is when you go to a parole board, you were, you, were accused, you, were, you, know, you were convicted of murder 20 years ago. You weren't just convicted of murder. You were convicted of murder by torture and, you know what I mean? Like, so they're adding to that. So it just it makes it harder for them to dismiss this. Oh, you're rehabbed. Robert served his sentence because he was also sentenced. Right. He served his sentence. He was released in 2013. I read an article that he was uh, in federal prison on charges related to child pornography, allegedly. I hope that's not true. I'm not sure. I'd be surprised with this family if it was. Uh, Today, William works, has a family, and enjoys what he calls a normal life. He shared his story on the TV show Evil Lives Here. That's why you were watching it the other day. In 2019. That's a show on ID that I absolutely love, by the way. Yeah, but you had a really ur- really weird urge you had to watch it the other day, and now it makes sense. It now research. I get it. I wanted this episode. Uh, I watched this episode the other night, and William stated that he is no longer in contact with any of his siblings whatsoever. Yeah, they all went their separate ways because they're all a starch reminder to each other of the shit they endured. And he has zero desire to see or speak to his mom. No. Howard has chosen to stay out of the public eye completely. I don't know where he is. Understandably, because he was the rapist of the family. I hope he got help. But I'm just saying, like, he's not going to come out and be like, yeah, my mom tortured us. And everyone's like, yeah, but you raped everybody. This is is super sad. I hated to hear this. Terry, uh, she was really the reason this whole case got solved. Mm -hmm. She continued to share her story even after her mother's arrest, appearing on numerous true crime TV shows, most notably Cold Case Files, which I love, until her death from heart failure in 2011. Unfortunately, she was just 41 years old when she passed. You know what's sad about that? She probably never knew that that was hereditary. I know. Because her Her grandmother grandmother, dropped dead of heart failure. Heart failure. So it was a hereditary thing, and her mom obviously didn't give a fuck about and she probably didn't even know her grandmother died of heart failure until someone put this entire story together down the road. You yeah, know what I mean? The I timeline. Know. Like someone like you sat there and put this timeline together. They probably had no idea that there was heart issues in the family. So sad. So why would they look into it? You know what I mean? But, I mean, she's a hero of this. They wouldn't even have identified her sisters if it wasn't for her. No, 100%. She's, she's the heroine of the story. Yeah. It's almost like a – what's the word I'm looking for? Ironical end? Yeah. I mean, she's the hero of the story, and she ends up a family curse. A family. I mean, she ends up dying of something hereditary that, given in, a, I don't want to say a, a good family, but, but a then normal her family. Fucking mother is eighty something years old yeah. and still alive and well. But a, like a, a regular family who would have known that, you know, my kids would know that if one of my parents had, God forbid, had had heart failure at that yeah. age, that I would be like, hey, this is something that's happened in our family. It's like you go everywhere, and they're like, hey, is there a history of, you know, cancer? Is there a history of diabetes? Are there a history of any of these things in your family? They didn't even know to say yes to any of that stuff. Yeah. And there really was, which in a way could have possibly helped prevent her untimely death. Maybe. We don't know. Yeah. Because it was it was purely medical. But it sucks because her evil mother is still alive in, in prison and probably like the boss hog of that freaking prison. I hope not. I hope not too. Will not say what I hope happens every day, but I would like to Nothing's think it's gonna happen to her. I would like to think because there is a code among there is honor amongst thieves, I'll say it that way, but there's always a code in prison, right? There's certain oh, things I know. you don't want to yeah. be in prison. 
and I don't know about women's correctional facilities. Yeah, I don't know. But either. I would like to think mm-hmm. that if you're an abusive piece of shit murderous mother like this. Of children. Of children. Yeah. That in women's prison, it equates to being a child molester in male prison. I hope so. It's one of the worst things you can be in prison for your own survivability. You know what I mean? Either way, I wish her continual yeast infections. And an awful hemorrhage until her dying day. I just wish her no peace. I don't think she'll ever have peace. I think she was born without it, and I think she'll die without it. And I think the afterlife, she won't have it either. So. Well, that's, that's the hope because she left so many kids without peace and she, she murdered two kids. Yeah. Well, and another man that just left her for being her, for her psycho self. Because there's a third murder that gets washed over in this story. Can we just say, poor Lee? <laughs> like, doesn't your heart break for Lee? <laughs> heart breaks for a lot of them. I know. But I think Lee gets kind of glossed over. Like, poor guy. <laughs> well, I mean. He's lucky. He's a lucky you, bastard. How do you gloss over most of You know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, I know. The ones that survived, or the two, two of the ones that survived were the worst two in the whole story. Yeah, that's true. The third one was the monster that everyone justified. Oh, William and William's alive, and he seems like he turned out. Well, okay. I'm saying, but they were the they, William and with Richard, Robert. Robert, Robert. They were monsters in the story. Well, they they were made to be they mon- made they're to be forced. monsters. Yeah, they were children. The <laughs> other one that survived was an absolute monster that everyone justified his sexual deviance and his basic yeah. raping of well, actually his actual raping of his family as. He's just sexually experimenting. I think... No! I think two turned their life around. It, it was William and Terry. I hope Howard did. He's kind of stayed out of the public eye, so I don't to know. To my point but, earlier, why would he want to be in when the whole story revolves around him molesting his family members? Like, I wouldn't want to be put into that. No, same. Because then you're worried about charges coming at you. You're worried about... You know what I mean? You never know what's going to happen, so you just stay away from the whole thing. Yeah, Jesus. Or he got away. Maybe he does live with an immense amount of guilt from that stuff. I hope so. And maybe he didn't want to readdress or ever get and I hope back he got involved help. with the shit he grew up with. Like, who yeah. wants to fucking relive that? Yeah, I hope he changed. And you know, you never know what happens to these people after they leave these houses. Yeah, and they see what the rest of the world is like, and they're like, "Holy fuck, my life was fucked up." Like, I didn't know that's not love. That was bad. Yeah, the shit I was doing was horrible. I thought that was okay because of what was around me. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, okay, that was not okay. That was not okay. That's not how you show love. But it also wasn't my fault in a lot of ways because that's just yeah. the environment we were raised and taught in. But in this, in the same token, you have to take responsibility. No, hundred percent. But like, you can take responsibility for your actions on a lot of those. But at the same time, you're, there's also a sense of like some of that guilt isn't theirs to have. Yeah, they were forced to do this shit to their sisters. They're, you know, all these other things. They were forced to throw their sister in the woods and lay her on fire. Yeah. When she was still technically alive. Yeah. And they knew this. Like, yeah, they got to feel bad because you went along with it. But to your point earlier with Terry in the closet, it's either us or her. Yeah. So there's a, so there's a fight or flight kind of thing. It's, a, it's survival. Like right. from birth, it's, it's just survival. And then, so there's going to be guilt on that. But at some point you have to come to terms of like, it's not my fault completely. Yeah. Like I did what I had to. And I feel bad for my part in the actions. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't, I didn't put myself in that situation. I yeah. didn't ask to be put in that situation. I was just stuck there. Right. That's, that's all I'm saying. It's There's some alleviation. No, you're right. It's just, I think we can all agree that it's just very sad all around. And it's infuriating. Infuriating, around. sad. And it also 
baffles me that people like this can have so many children when so many women out there just you know honestly we've talked about this hurting for children other stories and other things we've talked about that's one of the most cruel things about these stories is you have these, so. these couples and these families that would do people, anything for a child not just women but you have couples you know you got husbands and wives that have tried mm-hmm. for 10 years to have a child and they just can't yeah they, they just aren't medically blessed enough or there's some issue or whatever it is they just yeah. aren't able to and, and adoption's these, these so expensive. Yeah. Fucking seven kids. And they and kill they, half they kill, of them. They kill two of them and they just <sighs> abandon the other one. Oh my God, it's infuriating. And it's like, how is that? It's not fair. Fair. It's not fair. It's, 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 it's so frustrating because there's so many people that would kill to absolutely smother a child in love. Oh, yeah. For their entire life. Absolutely. And six kids just in this story. Yeah. Get showered in jealousy, hatred, mm-hmm. abuse, torture, and even, you know, Molestation and murder. Yep. People suck ass. Jeez. On that note, we'll see you back here next week. I, I do want <laughs> Just to kidding. point out something extremely ironic. Mm-hmm. It's been thunderstorming and actually hailing for 90% of the time we've been recording. Mm-hmm. You finished telling the story and it stopped. Yeah, because God hates us. <laughs> like, I just noticed that. I'm like, wow, it's not even raining anymore. It's been thunderstorming and hailing for the last hour. God doesn't like it. <laughs> Same. I don't like it either. The world doesn't like it. That's, that's what that is. Ooh. Well, we'll be back with you next week for an even worse story because I got a case recommendation from a listener that... Is it the one that always recommends shit? No. Okay, because she always recommends some fucked up shit. This is one of the fucked up cases that I just was holding off on for the longest time, so I'm just going to go it. ahead and... <laughs> that scares me. ...and dive into it next Week after next. So that we will. Easy, is it? No. Okay. No. No, I don't have the, the health capacity to take on Gacy right now. I was now. <laughs> hoping it wasn't going to be like H.H. Holmes or Gacy or one of the, or Ramirez or one of the monsters that you could do a 17-parter on. No, we'll get there. That'll be soon. Oh, don't worry. I have yay. a plan. But I love you guys. Be good to each other. Don't torture each other. And we will see you back here a week after if we, next. If we really have to say that to y'all, feel free to directly message us on our socials because yep. we'll have a conversation and point you to get some help. <laughs> uh, and I don't mean that jokingly. Like, if you really think about torturing people, reach Don't out. call us. Just no, reach call out the authorities. <laughs> but uh, no, seriously, we love y'all. We'll see you next time. Bye.